Good afternoon, everyone. Librarian Daniel Belanger here from the Code St. Luke Public Library joining you virtually. Today, we have another great program for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a second live conversation with the best-selling author of historical fiction, Jennifer Robson. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for taking the time to speak with me today from Toronto, as well as to Dave Knox at HarperCollins Canada for making this event possible. I'd also like to thank Andreas at Paragraph Bookstore for collaborating with us on the event. To begin with, I'll share a condensed bio. Jennifer Robson is the internationally best-selling author of The Gown, Somewhere in France, After the War is Over, Moonlight Over Paris, Good Night from London, and Our Darkest Night. She studied French literature and modern history as an undergraduate at King's University College at Western University, then attended St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford, where she obtained her doctorate in British Economic and Social History. While at Oxford, she was a Commonwealth Scholar and SSHRC Doctoral Fellow. Jennifer lives in Toronto with her husband, children, sheepdog, and three cats. Her seventh and latest book, Coronation Year, is set in 1953 and was released earlier this month on April 4th. Here it is, Coronation Year, and you can see it in back of Jennifer as well. Welcome back, Jennifer. Thank you again for joining us today, and congratulations on another very engaging and enthralling novel. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard to believe it's I'm getting it's getting close to a month since the book has been out. It, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. So yeah, it's nice to it's nice to have a, a moment just to sit here at home and uh, be able to to talk to everyone without rushing off uh, one place or another. Yes, and so timely. To begin, uh, I would like to ask a couple of questions about your sure. bio. For those who missed your last visit, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose French literature and modern history for your undergrad? I, I couldn't decide between the two. And funnily enough, I also really loved uh, taking English literature. I had some wonderful professors when I was at King's and I was one of those kids who just wanted to study everything. Um, and I had uh, an amazing, in particular, uh, two, two professors who were incredible and or what they taught me is with me more than 30 years later. Um, with French, it was a, a professor called Dante Lenardin who was really renowned at Western uh, for teaching, uh, you know, the great uh, 17th and 18th century uh, uh, um, uh, you know, works of literature in the French canon. Um, and, uh, you know, I just remember like, learning, uh, you know, reading the plays of Molière with this man uh, was was life-changing. Um, and he also he also uh, taught an amazing course in the Italian Renaissance. Um, and in fact, there's a building at uh, King's now called Dante Leonard and Hall named after him. He passed away a few years ago. And then the other professor who uh, really changed my life was Paul Webb, who is very, very much still with us and only just retired. And uh, I walked into uh, first year history at King's thinking, I don't know, history like my dad's making me take it because my father was a uh, a history professor and uh okay fine I'll give it a I, I mean I liked history in high school but I wasn't enthralled by it it was always English that called to me and I walked out of that first lecture going 
yeah, I think I'm going to major in history. Um, but it, there was a, I really also loved French uh, and still do. Um, although my command of French is not what it was when I was in my 20s. I could still understand everything and read it well, but then making myself understood, I tend to get tongue-tied. Um, uh, but, you know, I found actually, you know, to me, studying French literature, uh, unless it's, it's modern French literature, it, it was as much about studying French history at the time. Um, and so the two went really well together. Um, but I, then I had to choose something for graduate school and it was history that went out in the end. And that's what led me to Oxford. Perfect. And can you also tell us about becoming a Commonwealth Scholar in Social Sciences and Humans, Humanities Research Council? Yeah, doctor. yeah. Hello, sorry. So, it, which sounds really fancy. Uh, what it is, <laughs> is that's a, just a grant that they very generously uh, give a handful of students, and I was lucky enough to get one. Um, so the Commonwealth Scholarship is maybe less well-known than things like the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, funnily enough, my dad was a Rhodes Scholar back in the early 1960s, um, and always joked that, uh, uh, that you know, other people had made mistakes on their uh, on their application forms, and that's why they had to give it to him in the end, which I don't think was true at all. He's a very smart man, um, and uh, but I, I the thing with the roads is you have to be just the ultimate all rounder, and particularly you have to be good at you know you have to be uh, good at sports among other things you have to have had something like that and I just that was so far out of my wheelhouse I never I didn't even apply I thought well, this would just be hopeless and um, but I did apply for the Commonwealth which is a very generous scholarship um, and it, it, it's not specific to Oxford the way uh, a Rhodes Scholarship is it takes students from uh, Commonwealth countries and sends them to university in other Commonwealth countries um, and uh, and it will fund three full years of postgraduate studies uh, and including a very healthy stipend uh, abroad and so that got me through the first three years of my doctoral work and then the the Shirk doctoral fellowship uh, paid for the second uh, two years. I was just so lucky to get it. Um, and I'm very grateful to the Canadian taxpayer uh, and the taxpayers of the Commonwealth uh, for paying for my university education. Uh, you know, I hope I hope if you if if you've read and enjoyed my books that you feel a little bit of your contribution uh, has has come back <laughs> in a positive way for you. Yes, of course, it served you very well and it's allowed us to read many fantastic books. The settings for your novels up to this one, if I'm not mistaken, have been the First and Second World Wars. Mm -hmm. What drew you to write about post-war era England this time around? And did you, by any chance, have a premonition that the whole world would be anticipating the coronation of Elizabeth's second son, yeah. Prince Charles, just about a month after this novel's release? I, I did not. Um, so well, I'll address that first. Well, I had actually, I started work on this book started the first stages of research in the summer of 2020 um and uh and because typically what happens this is with most authors um even with people my books are come about two years apart so there's not a ton of overlap but there's still some overlap in that you know right now as i'm um traveling to talk about coronation year uh, i'm also working on my next book uh, i'm in the early stages of that uh and by that, that same token, when I was uh, talking about Our Darkest Night, my previous book, I was, I was uh, working on this one. And so I had, 
I, I, had no, I knew the title to begin with, Coronation Year, and I knew it would be a novel set in 1953. And my aim was always to, uh, to not to write a book about the Queen. Um, and I've gone, I can talk about that in a moment, but really uh, my folk, it's not that she wasn't interesting or that, you know, her life wasn't interesting. It's just, I think it was very well covered ground. Um, I didn't think there's anything I could add to the conversation about her as a person. Um, I also, uh, and I, I've said this before when I talked about the gown, which also is adjacent to her story, but not about Princess Elizabeth. I always felt a little uncomfortable, the idea of kind of trying to dig inside, um, you know, what her interior life might be. I, I, I didn't know what it was. I have no true notion of it, um, nor I think does does really anyone else uh, with a, a small, small, you know, her inner circle of close, close family members um, and maybe a handful of people who knew her really well. Um, you know, maybe um, people like, uh, you know, some, you know, retainers who'd been with her forever. Um, but I, I really don't think even, you know, like none of us really have an idea, a true idea of what made her tick. We can speculate, but we don't know um, because she never spoke about it directly on the record. Um, and, you know, we have a good idea, for instance, uh, of what makes Prince Harry tick. And I'm not going to, you know, get into the weeds about that, but, you know, he's, he's laid bare with his, with his memoir. This is, this is the innermost kind of workings of his heart. So we can say reasonably, I have an idea of what what goes on inside his head with the queen I couldn't know and and so that was one reason this book and the gown are not focused on um on the queen or anyone close to her but it's also that I'm really interested in and as a as a historian my work centered on the lives of ordinary people and the middle middle class working class people um and it remains my center of interest today and I wanted to know what it was like to be alive uh in London in 1953, um, also as a contrast to what we saw in, in the gown, which was set in 1947. So it's really that immediate post-war period. Things are very grim. Uh, there are shortages everywhere. People are still reeling, like psychologically, very, very afflicted by what they've lived through. Um, and of course, this is the period where, you know, help as we know it today, uh, which is not universally available, but it's you're much more likely if you're struggling with your mental wellness that there are avenues of help. Um, in 1947, you know, a handful of people might have might have been able to go to a psychiatrist. Just kind of modern, um, uh, you know, uh, psychological help that, that we. Th- we're used to being able to access was not available then. And so people were really, they were really struggling. And it's this period too, where I think of their having, people have having been on their knees at the end of World War II. And this is the moment, this is that harder, that hardest moment where you're struggling just to get on your feet again. You're not even walking, you're just getting up on your feet. Um, but by 1953, uh, it's not a, you know, a, a huge distance of time away, or really just six years. Uh, life was better, uh, not for everyone, not universally, but broadly speaking, it was better uh, in, in Great Britain and across Europe. Um, you know, the post-war shortages had begun to lessen. Uh, the economies of, of Europe and, and Britain were starting to recover um, from just 
the ruinous state they'd been left in at the end of the war. Um, and people were starting to feel hope again, I think, for the first time in a long time. Um, with the gown, uh, the, the occasion of Princess Elizabeth's wedding was a real beacon for people, uh, kind of lighting the way ahead. Um, and I think of the coronation in some ways as well, you know, having that role for people that, and it's not so much that it's a beacon, it's, it's like a, it's a, an affirmation that life is getting better and it's time to maybe celebrate. Um, I should, and I always want to add to, you know, I'm talking about the royal family. I'm talking about things like, you know, uh, uh, constitutional monarchies and, uh, you know, in, in, in people inheriting these positions and, uh, you know, this very long history of, um, you know, the royal family in Great Britain and, uh, you know, inherited wealth and influence. Uh, that's not to say that I accept all of this without uh, some very uh, serious personal misgivings about the rightness of uh, it as a continuing system of government for us as Canadians. Um, but also, you know, I do recognize the injustices of the past. Um, and certainly uh, with one of my characters in the book, James Geddes, I try to address in however small a way uh, the reality of 1953, which was, was that life was getting better, broadly speaking, but it was, it was, it was getting much better for a few, and, and, and it was not in a, a equally distributed, let's put it that way. Um, you know, injustice, uh, inequity was, uh, was an inescapable fact of life uh, in Britain then as it is now. So I'll share a synopsis of the plot for those listening in. It is coronation year 1953 and a new queen is about to be crowned. The people of London are in a mood to celebrate, none more so than the residents of the Blue Lion Hotel. Edie Howard, owner and operator of the floundering Blue Lion, has, the, has found the miracle she needs. On coronation day, Queen Elizabeth II in her gold coach will pass by the hotel's front door, allowing Edie to charge a fortune for rooms and, barring disaster, save her beloved home from financial ruin. Edie's luck might just be turning, all thanks to a queen she is unlikely to ever meet. Stella Donati, a young Italian photographer and Holocaust survivor, has come to live at the Blue Lion while she takes up a coveted position at Picture Weekly magazine. London in celebration mode feels like a different world to her. As she learns the ins and outs of her new profession, Stella discovers a purpose and direction that honor her past and bring hope for her future. James Geddes, a war hero and gifted artist, has struggled to make his mark in a world that, dis that disdains his Indian ancestry. At the Blue Lion Hotel, though, he is made to feel welcome and worthy. Yet even as his friendship with Edie deepens, he begins to suspect that something is badly amiss at his new home. When anonymous threats focused on Coronation Day, the Blue Lion, and even the Queen herself disrupt their mood of happy optimism, Edie and her friends must race to uncover the truth, save their home, and expose those who seek to erase the joy and promise of Coronation Year. So as you can see, there's a little bit of everything for readers yeah. in this novel, including elements of friendship, mystery, art, romance, gender, race, and class. How did you go about tying in all of these elements together so flawlessly? Well, thank you. Uh, you know, there's a lot of 
you know, you, there's the first draft that no one ever gets to see, including my editor. And then there's a slightly more polished version of that that I send to her and my literary agent, uh, which if it ever became public, I'd be completely mortified because it's uh, it's a really hot mess at that stage. Um, but I trust both Tessa, my editor, and uh, Kevin, my literary agent, to be able to see past that. They, you know, they've worked on way more books than I will ever work on. And to, to broadly speaking, see if I've, if, if I've got it right. And the, the tricky part is with a multi, uh, with a kind of a, a, a multi-voice narrative, so I have three voices threaded together, uh, is to make sure that um, that the voices are sufficiently different so that Edie doesn't sound like Jamie and who doesn't sound like Stella. They, these are three very different people. Um, and so I deliberately would, when I was working on their chapters, I would, uh, I would really have to sit and just let myself be immersed in their story and, 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 concentrating on thinking the way they would think and talking the way they would talk, if that makes any sense. And, and, you know, as I would write their chapters, I would go back and read the previous chapters I'd written and make sure everything was in line. And this is something I would do again and again as I was polishing the book. Um, but it's key too that the narrative the narrative proceeds, you know, smoothly so that there aren't weird kind of absences, uh, uh, you know, uh, weird chunks of time going by with nothing happening, or that it's too compressed at one point and then too kind of loosey goosey later on. Um, you know, there is a there. It, it is I found in my experience easier, uh, at least for me, uh, to write a single point of view, single person narrative uh, that is it progresses progresses in a really linear fashion from, you know, one date to a later date. Um, and in previous books, I, I've, I've done that more often than not. Um, and it's a satisfying way to write a book in that we're just completely immersed into the life of one person. Uh, with my previous book, I did that because I felt that uh, Nina's story as uh, a Jewish woman caught up in the Holocaust, I, I couldn't, uh, I, I didn't want to see the story from anyone else's point of view except hers. Uh, as compelling as I found some of the secondary characters, she she was the person uh, whose story I was telling. Um, but with this one, I felt it actually, and, I, and there are moments when early on in the planning, I thought, would this just be Edie's book and we would meet everyone through Edie's eyes and then I felt that both Stella and Jamie kind of standing at the periphery kind of almost standing over my shoulder uh, insisting they had things to say they had their own point of view to add to the narrative uh, and it also was the case that uh, we get to know Edie better because we see her through the eyes of of others in the way that she can't see herself and that's true of the other two characters so I feel that the that the differing points of view uh they build upon one another um all of that is to say that I find it very tricky <laughs> to write these braided narratives and there's a lot of uh again you know I, I'll box myself into a corner and realize, oh gosh, uh, I just told this part of the story from the point of view of the wrong character. Uh, and then I have to go back and, and rewrite it and then kind of rejig the narrative um, so that again, you know, the timeline isn't getting too compressed in one place is that it's, it's progressing in a way that feels pretty natural to the reader um and, and so all of that it, it was it was a very satisfying book to write um but there are moments where I was tearing out my hair thinking 
I'm not going to, I can't pull this off. And that would usually end in uh, either, usually a text to my, either my editor or my, um, my literary agent. And, and usually the text would start, um, do you have five minutes, which would code for them is to say, uh, do you actually have 45 minutes to listen to me cry <laughs> or, or freak out on the phone? And uh, they were always very patient with me. Um, and I also would call, I have, you know, my writer friends, uh, you know, who are usually just a text or phone call away uh, to, to kind of beg for help. Um, and we do this with, you know, all writers do this to one degree or another. You have your friends who, who understand that very strange kind of agony of having a book be really close, but not quite there. Well, it all worked out in the end. So we're, we're happy you, you yeah. <laughs> Your portrayal of Evie in this novel was so compelling. Can you tell us if this character was based on someone in, in particular from the past? Or was she, uh, like the Blue Lion Hotel itself, a product mm -hmm. of your imagination? She, she is. She's, she and Stella and, and Jamie are not based on any particular person. Uh, I've had some people ask if oh, was Jamie based on a real artist or a, a, and he's not. He's just kind of this person I, I wish had existed. Um, and with Edie, I don't know, sometimes I feel as if there's a little bit of Edie in, in me or me and Edie, except she's a, she's kind of, I feel she's a nicer, more patient <laughs> person. I probably would not have picked, uh, put up with some of the, you know, her long-term uh, borders. There's a, a pair of elderly sisters who are from kind of the, you know, the fringes of the aristocracy and who've been, uh, who've been a kind of denied a, um, an inheritance. And rather than do something with their lives, uh, they've just kind of moldered on in these rented rooms waiting for a lawsuit to be concluded, a kind of jarndice versus jarndice uh, type of thing. If, if, if anyone's familiar with the, with, with the Dickens and, and um, I think it was Bleak House. Uh, and, um, and I, I just, you know, I wanted with, with those characters, for example, they're a contrast to Edie, who again has inherited a life that she didn't ask for. Um, and who just has to make the best of things. And it never occurs to Edie to complain or even in, to really share her, her troubles with anyone. She, she doesn't think that anyone will be that interested. Um, and she's always doubting herself in terms of, you know, feeling badly that she, that, that she finds it troublesome, if that makes any sense. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's only really after years of, of struggling, it's only, you know, when we're in the period that the book covers that she dares to even mention that she's having a difficult time keeping this hotel open to, to anyone else uh, and to unburden herself. And But I wanted to see what would happen uh, when she finally found friends uh, who were willing to listen and ask for and ask nothing of her. They were just there to be her friends. Um, and there also are deliberate parallels that I drew with Edie's situation and that of the Queen, in that uh, for all that the Queen was fantastically wealthy and lived this life of kind of privilege that none of us can truly imagine what it's like to have that level of uh, of ease with your day-to-day -day life. Um, I, you know, if, for those, you know, occasionally I've gone on, you know, very occasionally, you know, if you stay at a truly, truly spectacular hotel for a night or two, uh, and there's that level of kind of service that is just mind-boggling, right? Um, 
that's, you know, I imagine that that is kind of in terms of that ease of life where, you know, everything is kind of thought of for you. So the queen did have that. The members of the royal family do have that. They also have a lot of other stuff that none of us in our wildest dreams would ever care to have to endure, right? And the, the constant, constant uh, public scrutiny, just being under uh, this, this bright light always, uh, I think would be intolerable for most people. Um, you know, there are plenty of ways to be wealthy and influential without having anybody following you around with cameras. Um, and, and what's really interesting with the queen's life is that when she was born, there was absolutely no sense that she would one day become the monarch. Uh, she held the position, uh, roughly speaking, that Princess uh, Beatrice, I th- which is the older one, Beatrice Eugenie, I think uh, Beatrice is the older one. So she was the eldest daughter of the second son of the monarch. Um, you know, nobody, like, nobody thought when she was born that she would become queen. Um, her, her uncle was still young. There was every possibility that he would marry and have children of his own. And as we all know, uh, he did become king, uh, but did not remain king for very long. He, he, um, uh, he abdicated and the job went to his brother. And that immediately made Elizabeth the heir, heiress presumptive uh, to the throne, age 10. Um, and there's a famous story I'm not sure whether it's true or not, but it feels true, uh, where Princess Margaret turned to her when the girls were told what this entailed, uh, that their father was going to become king, and that meant that Elizabeth would one day become queen. And her sister turned to her and said, poor you. And I kind of agree in the sense that, I mean, the queen never complained. Um, There's no sign that she resented it. Uh, She accepted it as a duty that she was obligated to fulfill. Um, But I think there's something kind of horrible uh, for anyone uh, being being born into position and never having a chance to explore any other possibility for themselves. And that's effectively what has happened to Edie. She has been born uh, solely to take on the the job of running this historic family hotel. And uh, in that she's, she's very solitary in that role, um, just as the queen was, had to be very solitary in her role. So obviously, you know, there's not, it's not an exact parallel, but I like to think that Edie understood what it was like, what it was like for the queen to have to take on these burdens more than say someone like, like I would, uh, who I've been free to make my own choices in my life, the way that neither of these women ever were. I suspect we all have a favorite character in this novel. Whose story did you enjoy writing the most and why? (laughs) Oh, man, I loved all three of these characters. (laughs) Um, You know, I have to say the one that was exciting and also really intimidating to write was the character of James Geddes. Um, It's been a while. In my first book, uh, it was a dual kind of perspective narrative uh, shared between uh, the two central characters, one of whom uh, is a, is a trauma surgeon uh, um, who is, uh, who's, who's kind of um, struggling to keep it together in, on the Western front. Um, And, but since then it's, the books have uniquely been uh, from the point of view of women. And, uh, and I struggled a little bit thinking, first of all, Gosh, it's been a while. I'm kind of rusty uh, writing something from the point of view of a man. But then I thought, oh, well, ultimately, he's also a human. Um, he's a person. And it's not, I'm not trying to figure out like 
the point of view of a, a Martian, right? He, he's a man and and knowable. Um, but uh, you know, he's uh, he's he's also further to that are two things of which I have no direct experience whatsoever. So he is uh, a war veteran um, struggling with uh, uh, some level of PTSD. Um, he was he's a bomb disposal officer uh, during the Second World War, and he uh, he is a hero by any stretch, any way you choose choose to interpret uh, those words. Um, and he's he's managed to carve out a life for himself in the post-war period, but not without a lot of difficulty. And he's also uh, a person of color. And again, I I cannot ever presume to know, nor would I presume to know what it is like uh, to, to be um, a person of color in what is foundationally a racist society. Um, and, you know, people, people kind of... Uh, uh, react to that um, in ways that, that aren't always positive. People don't want to admit that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I can tell you as an historian uh, that, yes, we do live in a, in a society that is, is, was founded upon and continues to be predicated upon lines that are both uh, implicitly and explicitly racist. And, um, and I just had this moment in the last few years thinking, that I, I didn't feel that my books reflected the true experience of, uh, it, they were only reflecting the experience of a very small portion of, of people who are alive at a given time. And it didn't seem right to, to create this book and, and leave out or not even attempt to address these profound inequities and the really corrosive history that it's based upon. Um, at the same time, uh, as as a, a white person who again has lived in the lap of luxury, you know, relatively speaking, and has has just, you know, have I have entitlement entitlements that I'm not even aware of on every level. Um, for me to just go and say, oh, I'm just going to write about a person of color and that's no big deal, um, is is wrong. Uh, I I, I really, uh, it's something that if you do embark upon, you have to do it with every bit of sensitivity and care um, uh, that you can, that you muster. Um, my approach to this was uh, to talk to um, uh, quite a few people, but it was three, three close friends that I relied upon principally for their points of view. Um, all of them come from, uh, or they're they are Canadians, or you know, their parents and grandparents uh, come from uh, backgrounds either uh, directly from uh, India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, uh, or they were from Britain uh, via those those countries, and all have very differing viewpoints, um, but ultimately very similar experiences in terms of. Um, uh, that you know the racism that they have personally experienced, and their parents certainly did, um, and that feeling of being othered constantly, uh, which is something that again I I have never personally had to uh, endure, um, but I I hope to try and understand by listening to other people. Um, so I submitted I talked with them and I submitted the manuscript for, for them to look at and made changes accordingly. Um, and I hope that uh, people uh, who have a similar background to Jamie's, uh, uh, he's, he's biracial, his mother is, is from India originally, uh, his father is, is Scottish, um, and makes the point uh, repeatedly that, um, that Jamie's mother is of a far more exalted origin than he 
he is personally, and he always felt he was the lucky one and uh, that she agreed to marry him. Um, so she's from a very grand background. And, um, but Jamie, his entire life has had to endure um, this feeling of, of, of people looking at him like he doesn't belong in the country where he was born and raised. Um, and even when he uh, became an officer uh, in, in, in the armed services during the war, he was not immune to, to that. Um, and he's just, his, his response has been uh, that of, I think a lot of people, I know that you just have to, you have to work harder and you have to be better and you have to have a really thick skin. Um, all of which is, very unfair. Um, and, uh, but I wanted to capture that. At the same time, I think Jamie's also a lot of fun. He's fun and he's, he's funny and he's interesting. And I think he's, um, for, for people who enjoy having a bit of romance in their books, I think he's quite a lovely, people talk about having book boyfriends and I challenge you to read this book and not fall a little bit in love with him. Um, and he also has, if you do listen to the audio book, which I'm sure is available through the library, um, the actor who did Jamie's voice, just perfect. <laughs> and he captures this very particular Edinburgh accent, which I knew Jamie had to have. And it's one of these things, you know, it's, it's, it's a very particular, it's called a Morningside accent. Um, and uh, Vidish uh, Athavale, who, who did Jamie's voice got it and I just I've listened to the audiobook a couple of times now I put it on in the car sometimes and I think oh my gosh this is it's it's not my creation anymore it's this shared creation with other people but it's so exciting to hear what the the amazing actors who who performed in the audiobook what they what they did with my words the places they took them it was that that's just wonderful I have to say <laughs> that's great to hear uh, I did see a question pop up, but I still have yeah, a sure. few more questions. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I, I will get to them. Don't worry, everyone listening. But I, I still have more questions yeah. for Jennifer. Um, so along those lines, you're talking about the audiobook. If a movie were made of this book, have you considered which actors you would cast? So, you know, I haven't, uh, to be <laughs> honest, because uh, and quite often I do. And for this book, I don't know why. I just they are so. Um, I have such such specific visions of each of them in my head and none of them conforms to any particular actor. Uh, it, you know, uh, I would say the closest really that I'm likely to get is the voices of the the three actors who 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 play them in in the uh, in the audiobook. Um, but in terms of who, who if it became a film, I, I can't say. And sometimes I'm reluctant to say I've done this with previous books. And then I feel as if I box myself in because someone else reading that might go, oh, no, 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 that's not that I can't ima even imagine that person is that character. Um, but I invite people if they have thoughts on that, then, you know, definitely weigh in. But I, I'm just going to leave it a blank for the moment and see what people suggest. Okay, fair enough. How did you choose which elements to fictionalize and which ones not to? So anything that's that's an accepted part of the historical record, right? Um, I'm not going to play around with that. Uh, I'm not going to have something wild like Prince Philip being crowned as king alongside the queen. I'm not going to change the date of the coronation. Uh, I wasn't going to actually have, uh, for example, anything calamitous happen happen on coronation day because it's not part of the historical record um so it, things that i can um th that i can blur a little bit um 
uh, and then explain in the author's note. The author's note is a great place to explain, this is what I did and this is why, so please don't get mad at me. Um, so the blue lion, I, I, you know, I had, that had to be my creation because there is no place in London that was both fulfilled the role of this very ancient hotel um, uh, and was also on the coronation route. There was, and I looked and, but even then, um, if I'd found a place that had, you know, just in terms of location fulfilled all of those details, uh, what about the people who actually lived and worked there? I would be erasing them from history. So sometimes the easiest thing to do is just to start fresh. Um, and what I have done, uh, and with apologies to the people who, who uh, work at the current, the building that is on the site where the Blue Lion stands, it's a lovely pub called the Sherlock Holmes. I, you know, I know a lot of people who go to London stop by there. It's a very popular public house and very, um, very picturesque. It's in a great spot, just right off, you know, right in the Charing Cross district of London, um, near Trafalgar Square. Um, but if you go there, you're not going to find the Blue Lion. Um, and in fact, the building uh, that stands there dates to the 1850s, whereas the Blue Lion uh, has a kind of an exterior that looks very Victorian, but that's a facade underneath is a is a very, very ancient building. And that, again, product of my imagination. Um, the one place where I do, and I felt anxious about doing it, um, where I did allow, um, you know, a real life to really bump up against my story, um, as there's a point in the book, I won't say exactly where, where we meet the queen, and uh, she is part of the proceedings very briefly. Um, I will say uh, that when I did my research for this, I did a few things. I made sure that the Queen was uh, in London on the day uh, that I say she's uh, there. Uh, I made sure that nothing she says is out of the ordinary in terms of, you know, things that she was known to have said in her life. I'm not going to suddenly have her uh, talking about, you know, conspiracy theories about something <laughs> crazier. Like, like, no, it's, you know, I, I cleave to what is known. Uh, I did this in a previous book where, uh, Good Night from London, where one of my characters meets and talks to Eleanor Roosevelt. And I didn't feel comfortable. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt is just a huge, huge hero of mine. And so I wasn't about to put words in her mouth. So really the things she says by and large are um, uh, kind of adaptations of, of remarks she's known to have made. And I did the same here. Um, and uh, and then I also, you know, I, I talk about this with my friend Janie Chang quite a lot. This is a discussion we've had off and on and we'll probably repeat it next weekend in Vancouver when we're appearing at a, an event together. It's it's not just that events uh, that you describe can are possible and that you've lined it all up and it works, right? Okay. The Queen could have been at this point in London that day. She's not known, for example, to have been in Australia that day. Um, and it seems what she's saying, that works. But that's not enough. It also then has to be plausible. So I had to look at, is the Queen, um, you know, in this moment, in this scene, is this true to what we know of her character, of the kind of things that she would do. And my feeling is that it is. Uh, um, and so that kind of cleared the way for me to, to insert her into the narrative. Like, would I have had her, I don't know, jumping out of her carriage, the, the Gold State coach <laughs> on coronation day to run after a bad guy and clock him over the head with her scepter? No, because that just 
it just didn't, it really, not only did it not happen, it like, it's impossible that it could ever have happened. Um, and so that's how I guide myself as I'm, as I'm working on these stories. Um, and, uh, and I hope, you know, as I said, I, and I didn't, I kind of fully answered earlier, I had started this book in 2020, I finished it, um, uh, I, I handed in the, the, really the, not the final draft, but I mean, the, the first kind of completed, very polished draft in January 2022. Um, and the book was finished in terms of all the edits by May. And then we had final versions that were actually being printed as, as the bound galleys, like the one you held up earlier. They were, um, uh, they were starting to be distributed uh, late that summer. Um, I think some as blue galleys and then later as the printed ones. So it was done. Uh, there was nothing. I, I made no changes after uh, the Queen passed away. Um, and the only thing I realized was, I mean, I had about a week of just feeling really kind of... Um, kind of overwhelmed by it to be honest and uh really trying to process my thoughts and um and then it did very belatedly occur to me that my book called coronation year which was already set for a pub date of april 4th um it had been set for about a year at that point i suddenly thought oh there may be another coronation this year. I mean, it's not typically coronations take about a year, a year or so to plant. Um, so I was actually not anticipating that would happen. I was thinking it would happen maybe this fall. Um, uh, they tend to avoid, you know, they're not going to have it in the depths of winter and they're not going to have it in the height of summer. So really you have these months of kind of April, May, June, and then you might get September and October. And, and apart from that, you know, so, but I did not think it would be taking place in May, to be honest, I was as taken aback as anyone. And um, so yeah, if it, it was not, um, uh, there was no kind of cash grab to try and like, you know, may, you know, uh, make the most of the publicity The the book was, was basically off to the printers before even, you know, the Queen's funeral happened. Um, so I hope people realize that and, yes. and, uh, and understand that it's an homage to not just the Queen, but also the people who lived through that time. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of how you commissioned artist Charisma Panchapakesan? Uh, Pancha, 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 no, it's okay. Panchapakesan. Okay. Uh, so it's charisma, yeah, in just, fact, the, I'll hold up a little. Yeah, that's one yeah, of them. And then the other one light. you can see is over my shoulder here. Uh, it's just there. That's the, that's the map. Uh, the picture, the blue lion hangs in my front hall downstairs. Thank you. You're so, um, so, so charisma and her husband, uh, Brian Haygood, are architects, and we commissioned them to uh, redesign our house. Uh, so in fact, oh. the the room I'm sitting in right now, uh, I'm sitting under the gable as I have this nice little chair. And so I'm sitting under the gable of my beautiful study uh, that went from basically something the size of a closet, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, to a big, beautiful room that's filled with windows. And it's even, on, it's kind of rainy here in Toronto today, but it's still really bright in this room. And I have a huge desk and I can just spread out all my stuff. And so, you know, over the course of two, two and a half years of their designing uh, the, the space and are going back and forth and, and then it, it was um, built last year. Um, got to know a charisma and Brian pretty well. And, uh, and as I got to know her, I, I discovered that she is a very, very talented fine artist. Um, it just, 
I just can't, I mean, people will say nice things about my writing and I do truly appreciate that, but I have, I'm just blown away by work that, uh, that artists like charisma can do. It, it just seems inconceivable to me that you can take a pencil and, and draw something uh, just as, as ornate as this or, or the, the picture of the blue lion. It just, and so what she did is she, uh, so I approached her, I was a little nervous and she was really excited about it and just dove in. And so what she did is she took the, the structural outline of the building that stands on the site, uh, which is the Sherlock Holmes, um, so that we knew it would, the, the blue line would fit. And then I had described it at length in a number of passages in the book. So she had that. And then she stripped, uh, she took the photograph and she stripped the photograph. I, during some kind of magic on her computer, she's able to kind of strip that building back to its effectively its foundations and just the bare structural elements. And then she rebuilt it as the blue lion uh, with all of the elements that I described. So there's even, you know, near the beginning of the book, I describe a little pot of primroses sitting on the windowsill of Jamie's room. And that pot of primroses is in the illustration. It's just, it's magical. And if I ever had a different idea of what the blue line looked like, I can't remember. I don't think it was different. I just didn't have the skills to bring it to life. And she did that for me. Um, and so if you go on any of my, you know, my Facebook or Instagram pages, you can see uh, the illustrations in detail. And she's also selling prints of them too, uh, for anybody who really wants to go, go the full coronation year experience. Um, but she is, her artwork is so gorgeous. It's really, really worth seeking out. So while researching for this book, um, did you do any research on St. Edward's crown, which will be used again for Prince Charles' coronation? I did because early on I had, I had a kind of a subplot that I had to abandon because it's just too unwieldy. Although I'm kind of thinking, oh, I'd love to <laughs> write a book about this at some point where um, uh, so the St. Edward's crown that we're going to see on May 6th is a recreation and it was a recreation that dates to 1661 um, because the original regalia uh, were all destroyed during the Civil War. So Cromwell, not him personally, but Cromwell's men, uh, his henchmen, um, took all of the ancient crowns uh, uh, and regalia and they melted them down. Uh, they prized out the jewels and they melted down everything else. And then they minted coins from uh, the fine metals. Um, and so you can, you know, you, I, in theory, I suppose you could probably get your hands on a coin, a gold coin that was made of uh, the gold from the ancient regalia, um, but it was lost. Um, and included there were some pieces. So the only piece that has survived, and you'll see it at the coronation, is the anointing spoon. Uh, so it's this beautiful silver gilt spoon uh, that dates to, I think it's probably the 13th century. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, it has kind of a bowl that's bisected, and he'll take two fingers and put the, and there, the anointing oil will be in the bowl of the spoon, and he'll put two fingers in, and then he'll make the sign of the cross on the king's, like his forehead, his his chest, um, uh, I think I think on his hands as well. Um, that's the only piece of the truly ancient stuff. But there, it was thought that the original Saint Edward's crown was the crown that was used um, 
by St. Edward the Confessor, uh, and that would have been in the, uh, you know, kind of the first third of the 11th century, so a thousand years old. Um, whether or not it was the actual original St. Edward's crown, we can't now know. Um, I So I, I did a deep dive into the royal regalia. I, if I pivoted over here, you'd see there are books and books about the crowns of England, the regalia, blah, blah, blah. And at one point I had this thought that I would um, have, a, again, a subplot involving uh, what was thought to be the lost crown of Alfred the Great, um, because there's one royal inventory uh, of, of, of just before the Civil War that mentions uh, King uh, Alfred's crown. Um, it's now thought that probably just uh, a mistake. Clark was a little bit tired and wrote down uh, Alfred instead of Edward. But it made me think, what if there was uh, King Alfred's crown, like a, a crown dating to, you know, somewhere in the middle of the ninth century. So eight, 840, 850, something like that. Um, what if that somehow had survived? It would be a very much simpler mm -hmm. piece, although the Saxon uh, goldsmiths were very advanced, but it, it, you know, by it would have looked very different. But but what if it had survived? Mm -hmm. And what if somehow it ends up buried in the cellar of the Blue Lion? <laughs> so that was that was my first one. And then I realized the farther I got in, I thought that's almost like a whole different book. And I don't think, I think it takes away from the character studies and the other things. So unfortunately the, the, the lost crown had to be removed, but it really, and I, I encourage people, if you're watching the coronation, uh, I guess really just a week and a bit, um, you know, again, setting aside, personal feelings we may all have about, you know, monarchies and so on. What I find really interesting, and I've written a piece for the Globe and Mail that will appear this coming weekend in the paper. Um, it's the historic uh, antecedents, which I find really, really compelling and interesting, in that we have a ceremony that's a, it's essentially, it's a thousand years old. And there are very, very few things left in our world that we can count on as being that old and having any kind of connection to our shared past. And even though it's just, it's a, it's, it's really like, principally in a kind of an Anglo-Saxon creation uh, that is also Christian in nature. Uh, um, what it also does when the, when the king takes his oath, the coronation oath, one of the principal parts of that oath is a promise to uphold the law and ensure uh, justice and mercy for all. And, and again, I do not pretend to be a constitutional scholar. I'm certainly not a lawyer. Um, but I do see in that some of the first echoes of what we enjoy today, which is a system of government predicated on uh, the rule of law and the principle that everyone deserves uh, justice and mercy. And, uh, and you know, the kings that followed, uh, this is King Edgar uh, back in 973, the kings that followed have quite often not brought justice, uh, mercy, and the rule of law um, to, to their citizens, but the principle has endured. And I think that's a really interesting connection with our ancient past that we, you know, and each one of us here uh, is related, however distantly, to someone who is alive in 973. It's just, it's, you know, that's just the way that, you know, that rules of descent work, that if you're here today, somebody, one of your ancestors was alive on the planet that long ago, um, multiple ancestors. And, um, and so, you know, that's a direct link uh, to your own past in some ways. I, I think it's, it's really compelling. Um, and it's a way to look beyond 
the superficial parts of this, you know, what are people wearing, the glitz and the glamour, and who's talking to who, who's side-eyeing the other person. That's, you know, that's fun. Um, but I think what really endures are, the, are these these really ancient principles uh, that were right-minded. However, it may have been uh, kind of gotten a little foggy over the centuries. The idea that that the rule of law has to be upheld is is one worth worth cherishing. So I did read somewhere that you said um, perhaps your invitation was lost in the mail, but you did shocking. not get invited. Shocking, to shocking. <laughs> I did not. And I, you know, I feel I, I, I'm not going to hold it personally against the king because I sure he, I'm sure he's a lot going on. Um, I'm going to be attending a, a, a coronation viewing party uh, with a group of very close friends. Mm -hmm. We've watched. Um, all the royal occasions together and and not to say that we're a bunch of diehard royalists we we just find it again interesting there's a lot of there's a number of lawyers in the in the group um it just as a as a historical occasion and so we get up at the crack of dawn um we don't dress up i have to admit i i you know, even for the royal wedding in 2011, we didn't have fascinators. Um, although afterwards, I was like, oh, we should have put on some fascinators. But we will have, you know, um, uh, crumpets and scones and uh, and mimosas and uh, probably some champagne. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then we'll, <laughs> that'll be at four in the morning, and then somehow we'll have to get on with the rest of our days. So, yeah. <laughs> So will any will will you or any of your friends be reproducing the Diamond Jubilee coach? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's interesting, and the um, people have been speculating a lot about the fact that um, you know that the coach is uh, uh, that they're not using the the Gold State coach right to to go uh, to uh, the Abbey, and the reality is, that, and I've, I've on record as saying this more than a few times. Um, the Gold State coaches is just unbelievably uncomfortable to ride in. Um, and, you know, pretty much every royal who's talked about it has talked about how horrible it is. And I think, you know, the king and queen uh, next week will have much the same feelings. It has, because it's not sprung the way a modern carriage would be. Um, by modern, I mean anything built within the last 150 years. Um, it, it, it And even... When it was built, carriages were starting to be uh, hung, hung on, on kind of sprung um, harnesses. This is uh, it, it's it's held aloft on strips of leather, uh, which means kind of laterally there's a little bit of movement. And so what it means is as you're sitting in it, you're moving forward and side to side at the same time, which if you just do that sitting on your chair, you'll start feeling nauseous pretty quickly. And so what I, you know, some of the, the anecdotes I've read, I mean, the King's father, uh, so King George VI, um, was, uh, he was a naval midshipman, I think, uh, that was his rank in the First World War. So he's a, he was a, um, he was in the Navy um, and uh, presumably, um, you know, was used to having to kind of tough it out and in, in pretty, pretty uh, fierce, uh, fierce weather. And he said in his diary after the corn, his coronation in 1937, that being in the ride in the Gold State coach was one of the most unpleasant experiences of his entire mm -hmm. life. And I thought a naval officer, like, like, you know, a weathered mm -hmm. sailor thinks that. Um, Queen Victoria refused to ride in it. She wrote it in her coronation. And then that, I think, 
I don't think they managed to get her inside the thing again. And she said it just, she called it the distressing oscillations of the carriage <laughs> just made her feel terrible. So that's the, I think that's the reason it's, it's, it also is like a slightly more slim down, more modest uh, in line with kind of the austerity measures that are happening in Britain. So I think it, it makes sense for them to go to the Abbey uh, in the, this modern coach that has sprung nicely, has air conditioning, you know, <laughs> and so that everyone's feeling very, you know, fresh as a daisy when they get there. Um, bearing in mind also they're, both of them are like 50 years older than the yes. queen was when she was or close to when she was crowned and it's a long and pretty arduous ceremony i mean they've cut it by two thirds but it's still a very long and very intense ceremony so i think it's good they you know they'll arrive and feel ready to go and then they just have to endure the horrible ride home in the and a much shorter procession to um again in line with austerity measures it's it's one of these things it costs a lot of money mm-hmm the longer route is the costs of, of having it just, they rise exponentially in terms of security and having people uh, to, to, to kind of uh, um, uh, stand by the side, you know, you, you can't just have civilians as it were, you have to have police officers or soldiers mm-hmm. to do it. And, um, uh, and it, that costs a lot of money. So that's why I think they're keeping it kind of a swift zip, zip, yeah. <laughs> up, up, you know, back up Whitehall, down the mall. And, uh, um, but it'll still give, there's still plenty of room for people to see them go by if they want to. It's just not going by the Blue Lion, very unfortunately. So I did come across, and this is the last thing I'll share before uh, turning it over to questions, but I did come across a funny article uh, stating that in 1953, at this coronation that Mm -hmm. you talk about in your book, Mm -hmm. uh, Prince Charles got his paws on the crown. And everyone was worried he may drop it. Did you come across this? I hadn't, I hadn't seen that. There's, you know what? So he is, so Princess Anne wasn't at the coronation itself. She was too little. She was just a toddler. And Prince Charles, who was, I think, four, um, he, uh, he, well, four, he would have been like four and a half. uh, And um, so you see, he was brought up for part of the coronation. And you can see him kind of trying to be so good, right? And just sitting there and kind of like, you know, when the little ones are like, uh, (laughs) Oh. <laughs> and um, but one lovely thing, and I mentioned this uh, in an interview I gave with Sarah Lang from the the Star earlier this week, the Toronto Star. Um, there's some pictures, um, and I think they're accessible through the National Portrait Gallery in the UK. Uh, Cecil Beaton took them, and they're not part of the official coronation portraits. There's some just uh, candid family photographs he took kind of later in the day. And it's the queen mum with the two royal children who at this stage, I think we're talking, it's probably like the late afternoon, early evening when these pictures were taken, were starting to unravel as Mm -hmm. any normal little kids would do, right? So just imagine Prince Louis, where he's going to (laughs) be next to me. I just have to admit, I am waiting to see if he's a complete (laughs) rascal. And I just love that about that little guy. Um, But the two of them, you could see were getting into like very rascal moments and the look on the queen mom's face is so love because she was also dignified and but and she's <laughs> keeping it together but she has that she's holding them and then you see like she's holding prince charles and they're trying to do a picture together oh let's look at the camera and then you see kind of in front in the foreground you see a blur and you realize it's princess anne running by right <laughs> and the kids were just starting to go nuts and i thought that that was very lovely i have to find um 
uh, see if I can find a link to them on the National Portrait Gallery uh, so that I can I can put them up so people can see. Um, but yeah, he, he was he was a pretty for four years old. He did very well. And I suspect I mean, I'm sure the royal children, I'm sure George and uh, Charlotte will be impeccably behaved. And I do not think they're going to have little Louis at the coronation itself, because that's just, it's too much to put on a little guy who's just five. And um, I, I suspect, you know, they may just have him out for like the last like three minutes. And then he may get to then go in the carriage with his brother and sister, which would probably be plenty exciting. Um, and then be on the balcony. Although I have to say the balcony is low, right? When you're standing, it's not much above waist height and I always personally have this fear that like one of those kids is just going to jump up and uh, I mean it's not radically high above the ground but nonetheless I just I always feel as if I just want to have a little like you know one of those little um, little training things you know the the little they called them leading strings when children in the Victorian period but you know just want to have a little something attached to the back of his belt just mm -hmm. to stop him from maybe or jumping little nets yeah, exactly <laughs> little nets or yeah yeah um or you know or a little bit of netting below in case anybody topples so far no one is on record as having fallen off that balcony so I think we're safe for for next week Great. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Let You're me very just welcome. move on to the questions. I know everyone uh, who hasn't read the book yet will love it as I did because it's fabulous. Um, so this question is from Julie Huff. Uh, hello, Miss Robinson. Thank you. Uh, Robson, sorry. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Like you, I am an SSHRC holder and oh, completed... <laughs> both a Master's of History and a Master's of English at McMaster University. I have two questions. So the first question, how did you develop Jamie's character when his background is so different from your own? Mm -hmm. Of course, fiction itself means that you're imagining any character, but a Scottish man of partial Indian descent living in 1953 mm -hmm. is far different. His story includes that of race and PTSD. What kind mm -hmm. of research did you perform in order to create his character? So in addition to speaking with friends, right, who are contemporary people, right, they have no personal knowledge of living in the 50s. One of those friends, her parents, she's she's my age, but she's like the youngest of all the kids. And her parents were actually married in, I think, either 1947 or 53. I think it was 53. Um, and her father was Indian and her mom was um, uh, Welsh. And they got married in Wales. And uh, the newspaper um, article in the local um town where they're living I, I don't I I can't remember where exactly in Wales it was it wasn't Cardiff I think it was farther north and um uh, that newspaper article is every bit as racist as one would imagine that newspaper and I you know I'm not going to repeat any of the language but some of it was like really they, like and I think it it was some kind of nine days wonder that you know uh her mom married this you know, foreigner uh, who was, you know, her, her father was a very accomplished man. And, uh, um, and that was kind of, you know, it was unsurprising to her that that, that would have happened. Um, but, you know, so I couldn't just take it from the point of view of my friends, like that was very helpful in terms of informing me as I started out. And then also as I, uh, when I was polishing the manuscript, just to see if I had inadvertently said something, missed something that was important. Uh, in terms of researching, 
Jamie's personal experiences. So there's kind of two uh, fields. First, there was his, there were his experiences as a bomb disposal officer in the World War II. And there's no end of memoirs and oral histories. And you just go to the Imperial War Museum. And their oral history database is incredible. And there's many, I would say many, but there's a, a good number of um, memoirs of, of people who were bomb disposal officers to rely upon in terms of what was that like. Um, and then in terms of his, his own experiences, again, I was looking at memoirs and reminiscences of people uh, who, uh, who either uh, like, uh, you know, Indian, uh, like born in Indian who'd moved to, to England or who had been born in England and were of Indian descent um, and, and, and talking about their experiences. Uh, both in just larger general histories of kind of race in Britain in the 20th century, um, but also in, again, memoirs, diaries. Uh, and it was, you know, there was nothing particularly unexpected. Um, I, you know, I, it, it, it wasn't unexpected. It was, it was affirming for me to, to realize that my suspicion had, had been correct or my assumption had been correct and that Britain was, uh, uh, contrary to what, uh, you know, um, right-wing politicians would have you believe, Britain was then uh, quite a diverse place. Not uniformly. I think if you went into a small um, you know, rural vi village in the, you know, in the middle of nowhere, it probably would have been uh, pretty, you know, the, the population would have been almost uniformly Caucasian. Uh, but the port cities, Britain historically, uh, for thousands of years has been a country, uh, or England and the associated countries have been uh, countries that kind of live off their ports. It's an island. And uh, when you have ports, you have people who who uh, end up moving there, who, who, who've come from elsewhere. Um, you see it in Roman times. Um, and, uh, and so Britain in the 1950s not only had people who historically had lived there for a long time uh, who were not white, um, but you also have the beginnings of um, of uh, the successive waves of immigration from abroad. Um, you have the Windrush generation. Uh, you have, um, and a lot of people too, who had come to Britain in both the First and Second World Wars to help uh, with labor, and many of whom had stayed. Um, so Britain was, you know, despite a lot of the history, uh, and it's not so much history, it's just the way that Britain is portrayed in uh, TV movies, for example. Um, you know, you will, you'll see just uniformly white people everywhere you look in a lot of these movies. And that wasn't always the case. Um, and people's memories are a little selective. Uh, and I, you know, I'm guilty of this myself in my previous books and perhaps not uh, acknowledging uh, that Britain was a more diverse place than a lot of people remember. And I'm hoping I can kind of uh, put a put some of that to rights. Uh, and this is the first step uh, by including Jamie in this narrative where, where I feel he belongs. So I'll go back in a second to Julie Huff's second question. But in the meantime, uh, one of our regulars, Esther Chillag, said racist attitudes, what's very common in Britain, as I shockingly learned from the book Small Island by Andrea Levy. So yeah, I'll go back. I, <laughs> I was going to say, I was horrified 
Uh, I shouldn't have been, but this is, you know, I was young when, it, when I first went to Britain uh, for, for lengths of time in my late teens, early twenties, when I was a university student um, and then a graduate student, I, I was uh, astonished and horrified by how, how, and I'm not saying by the way, that British people across the, you know, just uniformly are racist people. That is not the case at all. Um, but I was astonished by how overt uh, some people, a minority, but some people were with their racism, using language that I would never dream. Even back in the 80s and 90s, I would never have dreamed of saying any of these words out loud. And they were said publicly and not, you know, people were kind of not objecting to it. And I, uh, I found I made myself pretty unpopular sometimes by saying that's not a word you can use. You just can't use that word. And they would be surprised that, that I would be challenging them on it. And uh, um, but it is it is, you know, it's I think in Canada, we are far from perfect here. Boy, do we have a lot to work on. Um, but I think generally speaking, as a society, we have a greater it's not perfect, not, but a, generally speaking, our comfort level is a bit higher with the idea of of our being a country that embraces diversity mm -hmm. and in Britain I think that's something they're still working on again I'm not I'm this is a generalization mm -hmm. this is not I'm not trying to tar everyone uh with the same brush but so I will go back to Julie Huff's second question. Aside from coronation year, you mentioned that you studied the Italian Renaissance at the Academy. Similarly, I wrote my thesis on the Renaissance and wonder if you plan on delving into that setting and time for a future book. Oh, no. Uh, it, it, not that I find it, I'll, I'll be, I'll be straightforward. Not that I would find it fascinating, um, but, you know, uh, kind of, uh, to me, I'm, I'm, very likely to always stay in what I consider my wheelhouse, as it were, which is the history of Britain and your and and kind of uh, Western Europe in the in the 20th century. Um, you know, the farthest I've gone a, a field, or you know, the farthest I've I've strayed from that has been my previous book, Our Darkest Night, uh, which is set in Northern Italy uh, in the later years of World War II, um, and that I only felt comfortable doing because I had the the support and um, a kind of uh, you know. All, all of the, um, uh, how should I put it? Uh, my, my husband and his family were enormously helpful in terms of kind of helping me fill in the gaps of the history there. Also, I don't speak Italian. I mean, I, I, I speak in French imperfectly, um, but my Italian is confined to um, the, um, the dialect that I know from my late parents-in-law. Um, and I don't read Italian very well. So it's tricky for me to do research. Um, I had to rely on my husband and his sister and his cousins quite a lot um, in terms of translating things. And that being said, I mean, I would love to write something else set in Italy. Um, and uh, it's just a case of um, finding books that not only, or finding subjects, not only that call to me, but that, and I'll you know be honest about it, um, that my publisher finds acceptable as a subject and marketable. Um, it, you know, it's just a hard reality that um, I have to make a living uh, with the books I write. Um, and as much as I would love to do, you know, I I find like like 
early Georgian Britain really interesting. Uh, but nobody is waiting for me to write the next great history of Britain in the 1740s. I'll tell you, like, it's just not <laughs> going to happen. Um, and, you know, even tremendously famous authors uh, are somewhat constrained by what we can write about based on what is considered marketable. Um, and you can push the boundaries, but it's not always, it's not always that easy. So I noticed that as you're touring this fabulous book, um, you have a few events, some coming up, some past already, uh, where yeah. there's a high tea involved. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that is my my wonderful team at HarperCollins Canada. And you mentioned Dave earlier, who's my publicist. And he there's just a, a number of people in the marketing and publicity departments who are just super smart in terms of just having these fabulous ideas. And I think it was probably four or five years ago when we did a, our first high tea. Um, and that would have been, uh, it would have been myself and Kate Quinn. I think it was just myself and Kate Quinn. And I think we did that in Toronto. And then we did another one in Ottawa and they were, you know, they, they sold out really quickly. And then uh, in the last few years, there have been more high teas in, in Toronto and Vancouver. Um, we would, I would love to take them across the country. Um, and I am doing one in Vancouver that, that is also sold out. Uh, but I believe there will be some more, just if people are listening, there'll be some more, um, um, this fall, and there may possibly be a high tea in Vancouver, not Vancouver, in Ottawa. Um, mm -hmm. I can't say who the authors are. I won't be one of the authors, but they're fabulous authors, and um, and it's worth uh, it's worth keeping your eye on Harper Collins's like, social media uh, pages because they will announce them, and when they announce the tickets going on sale just just buy yes. them right away don't even just check to just buy them because they I think one of the teas that Kate and I did a few years ago sold out in 11 minutes and I was so mortified I my sister couldn't even get a ticket I felt so bad oh um but they're fun they're fun and I've done some others that are not you know through HarperCollins um but I will say the team at HarperCollins are they just put on the most and they're so organized and yeah and then we feel like rock stars I feel like a rock star and then I get home and then my kids remind me that I'm not a rock star and every, <laughs> everything goes back to normal well that's great um thank you so much Jennifer on uh the release of coronation year and thank the you. fact that it's already best-selling that's fabulous very um, nice surprise yes and we all enjoyed speaking to you and look forward to your next book Thank, Thank you, you so much. Have a good rest Thanks, of the day. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.